This is a story about salamanders, but these aren't your average salamanders. These animals can grow back organs after they've been removed or injured. We have a pretty simple question, right? Why does an animal grow back its tissues? For example, it could be an arm, it could be a liver or an eye, whatever it is. Uh, we need to understand how they do it so we can translate that into human therapies. I want you to meet the axolotl. They're adorable. They're really cute animals. They make great pets. My daughter's been really wanting a pet axolotl. They eat each other. So they're cannibalistic. But most importantly, they could be the answer to making things like stem cell therapy more effective in humans. If we can understand how they can do it, possibly we could do it also. From News at Northeastern, this is Litmus, a conversation with Northeastern University's groundbreaking researchers. We connect what's going on in their labs to what's going on in your life. We're News at Northeastern reporters Emily Arnson and Aria Bracci. Can you explain what they look like? They're slimy skin, so they always have like kind of a glow to them. They have these bright red feathery gills on their head that they flick to uh, breathe underwater. And their mouth is just shaped in the way that it's a little smile. This is James, James Monahan. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Biology. He is trying to figure out why axolotls are so good at regenerating. You know, when an injury occurs, some cues are released. And something that some animals will tell those cells near the injury to possibly turn back on old programs that were dormant to regrow an organ, it turns back on the genes that were used in development that we permanently turn off. He wants to know how the axolotls know when to turn on those genes and how they send those signals to the cells. We need to understand how it goes from that resting state. It's called homeostasis, where we know that we're uninjured. And how do you go from that homeostatic state, the resting state, into a regenerative state? Most other animals can't turn those genes on again after they're done growing, like humans. Humans are notoriously bad at regenerating. Um, we tend to just seal up the wound. Uh, we do retain the ability to grow back portions of our fingers, where uh, at least till when we're teenagers, if the tip of your finger is amputated, if you get your finger crushed in a door, you lose the tip, and if that happens up to the base of the nail bed, the digit will grow back on its own. But beyond that, compared to most animals, we're pretty poor at it. And that's why axolotls are so special. They're way better than any other animal at doing this. But the evolutionary reason why they're able to do this is really weird. Scientists think it's because when they're babies, they eat each other's arms. It's a little hand-waving on why, but... They, they do eat each other's arms. Every mating has about 800 siblings. If they're in a little small location, it'll turn out that oftentimes you'll have one animal that's really big uh, with all its arms, and then all the siblings have no arms. So they're cannibalistic. You could think of that being a selective pressure that, you know, uh, early in development, if you could just grow back that arm that you lost, there's an advantage to that. I know it's a pretty gruesome reason that cannibalism's <laughs> the possible reason why you would grow back arms, but, but that's a possibility. Um, another possibility is that because these animals are continuous growers, so they'll just grow to the size of the tank they're in. So if you need to continuously grow, then you need to keep the, the pathways, the genes that regulate growth on while we might turn those off. So what's the biggest axolotl that you have in your life? Oh, man. Uh, Big Mama. She's probably almost a decade old now. How long? 
She's at least a foot and a half. Oh, well, over a foot. That's always the first thing people say when they walk in the lab. They say, whoa, those are a lot bigger than I expected. So they're big growers. They can regrow their arms because of this like thing that they do to each other as children. But those aren't the only reasons why they might have this ability. And so I was reading a little bit about the axolotl, and I was just wondering if its ability to regenerate has anything to do with the fact that it doesn't go through metamorphosis. Yep. Right. The axolotl is somewhat of an evolutionary oddity in that just a single mutation happened that swept through the population that kept them from undergoing metamorphosis. So normally you think of a salamander, it lives in the dirt, but does not live underwater, like a frog, right? Frogs are tadpoles. The tadpoles grow little legs, then they use those legs to leave the pond. But somewhere along the evolutionary timeline of these axolotls, they decided, nope, we're not leaving the pond. We are going to stay underwater forever. So being that this is a recent evolutionary event and that these animals came from a species that walked on land that underwent metamorphosis, they have all the parts to undergo metamorphosis. So if you just add thyroid hormone in the water, it kicks them over to the adult stage. That would be the worst thing if someone walked in my lab and threw thyroid hormone in my water because <laughs> all my animals would become adults. Uh, so they have the, the pieces there. They just don't get this spike of thyroid hormone to make them undergo metamorphosis. But you can do it experimentally. So we took a lot of siblings and we induced metamorphosis in half and we kept the other half in the juvenile state, amputated their limbs, and then asked if the ones that were in the adult metamorphic state regenerated as well. It turns out all of them had some defect in regeneration. They grew back half as fast. They had missing pieces of their digit or their hand. So there is some association with being in the juvenile state and their ability to regenerate, but it's not the, the main factor. He doesn't know what the main factor is yet, but the people in his lab have identified a protein that's responsible for regeneration. It's called neregulin-1. So this neregulin-1 was found to be uh, involved in limb regeneration of a axolotl salamander. They tested that by doing what James calls the move it or lose it test. Move it, lose it. Essentially, they identified a protein, neregulin one. They lost it or took it away. And then when they did that, they found that regeneration stopped. And then they moved it to see if that protein would induce regeneration in different organs. And it did. So we found that neregulin signaling is involved in lung regeneration and in heart regeneration and in spinal cord regenerations. So if you could identify the genes that are responsible for regeneration, how do you imagine those being used in humans? Like, is that gene therapy? Is that drugs? We can think of it at two different angles or two different approaches. One is learning the materials that are in the environment of the axolotl that we might not have in an injury. So I'll, I'll explain that. He's actually testing this kind of approach uh, in a study that he's doing with another professor at Northeastern. Her name is Rebecca Carrier. They're working on retina transplants. So they're trying to figure out how to transplant retinal cells using chemicals found in the axolotl. we got to find the factors that are in the axolotl eye that we can put in the human stem cell. So in the experiment, they used pig eyes, which are similar to human eyes. And when they transplanted the retinal cells from the eye of one pig into the eye of another pig... 99 plus percent of the cells all die. Something was wrong. They don't have the right cues or something's missing in either uh, the cocktail, the factors that they co-inject with into the human eye or into the animal model. And this is pretty common with transplants. So if you've probably heard of people's bodies rejecting organs or blood or something after a transplant... Um, that's because humans' immune systems can tell when there's a foreign intruder. 
So when our bodies sense that, our immune system attacks those outside cells. But the axolotls don't have that kind of immune system. They can't tell what is and isn't them. So when they put those same pig cells in the eye of an axolotl, a lot fewer cells died. And the cells were much happier, more survived. So there's something in the actual axolotl retina that the human cells or the mammalian cells like. That thing is called hyaluronic acid. We found in a study last year that this molecule called hyaluronic acid is in high levels in the axolotl. If those factors are added to the cocktail mix that they inject, then we have a direct result from the axolotl that translates into human. So that is one approach. The other approach is to learn how the axolotls revert their specialized cells back into undifferentiated cells. So cells that could be turned into anything, like stem cells. And if we could figure that out, then we could mimic that process in humans. Every one of our cells has all the DNA necessary to make every other cell type. But through development, we turn off most of the genes, probably for good reason, because we probably get cancer a lot more often. I asked News at Northeastern Science reporter Laura Castagnon if she could explain this a little bit more. We have the ability for things in our body to shift in response to triggers. The trigger in this case for an axolotl is losing a limb. And it's important that there's something that triggers it on and off. If you think about what happens in us if we have cells that are accidentally perpetually growing, that's what cancer is, right? So we have the ability to have our cells grow spontaneously and a lot. It's just super, super bad for us. What we don't have is the on-off switch. So that's what he's trying to hone in on, is how do we, how do we trigger it and then turn it off when it's done? Let's give an example of um, what makes your pinky. There was a molecule that was used in development to say, let's make a pinky at that time. And then you were a baby, and then you were a kid, and then you were a teenager. And by that time, your pinky probably, hopefully, stopped developing. And then that gene is silenced through mechanisms called epigenetics, where tags are put on the DNA to turn off that gene and make sure it doesn't turn on. Because if it did turn on, you'd have chaos. We don't want to spontaneously grow another pinky or let our pinkies grow forever. What happens in, in the salamander is it's off, but when an injury occurs, they can change the tags or the epigenetic state of the gene that makes the pinky so it can be turned back on. I mean, the best example of this, I just taught it in class 30 minutes ago, is in 2006, Shinya Yamanaka showed that you can take any cell of the body, and by just turning on four genes, it changes the epigenetic tags of any cell and turn it back into an embryonic stem cell. So something that has the potential to turn into anything else. What if we could just take a, a differentiated cell just a couple steps back, not all the way back to when we were a single cell embryo? That might do the trick. There's a lot of steps in cell differentiation, right? It's not stem cell and then a hair. And so just trying to step a cell back one step so that it can make more of itself, that's why it's a lot more achievable. You already made an arm once. You already made an organ once. If we just know how to turn back on those programs, I think the body might just do the rest of the work. Special thanks to James Monahan, Associate Professor of Biology and Director of the Monahan Lab. Special thanks also to News at Northeastern science reporter Laura Castagnon. Sound editing by me, Emily Arnson, with mastering and mixing by Anthony Polito. Our editor is David Filipov. From News at Northeastern, this is Litmus, where News at Northeastern reporters Emily Arnson and Aria Brachi. Goodbye. <laughs>